in the introduction to The Story of Art Without Men, art historian Katie Hessel offers some statistics that stop the reader in their tracks. Currently, women artists make up just 1% of London's National Gallery collection. 2023 will mark the first time the Royal Academy of Arts has ever hosted a solo exhibition by a woman in their main space. 30% of the British public can name no more than three women artists, and 83% of 18 to 24-year-olds could name not even three. For several years now, Hessel has not only been highlighting this grotesque disparity, but fighting to correct it. First in her podcast and Instagram account, The Great Women Artists, and now in her magisterial book, The Story of Art Without Men. Beginning in the 16th century and transporting us up to the present, Hessel demonstrates time and again how women have been erased from the history of art, and how, time and again, despite the restrictions imposed by the constraints of the patriarchy, have proven significantly more radical and inventive than their male counterparts. The History of Art Without Men is an exciting, enlightening and impassioning read, and it will come as little surprise to those who've read it that it was recently named the Waterstones Book of the Year. I'm delighted to say that Katie Hessel joins me today to discuss it. Katie, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's interesting. In the introduction, you talk about your kind of road to Damascus moment. Uh, so you say that in, it was in October 2015. You walked into an art fair and you realised out of the thousands of artworks in front of you, not a single one was by a woman. Um, so I'm just curious about October 2015. What, what was your journey up to that point? And what was it that fed into this, uh, this revelation in the gallery? I mean, the thing is, I've sort of been a lifelong art lover, art historian, you know, ever since I could study it. I jumped at the opportunity. I studied it for A-level, which was amazing. And then I went on to do a BA in art history for three years. And, you know, when I was studying, I didn't really think about it. I just thought art history mm -hmm. was these sort of great themes, these kind of big biblical and mythological subject matters, or, you know, moving into contemporary art, more conceptual ideas. And it was actually, took me until I had to have you know finished my degree it took me until I left university to actually realize that what I had been studying was half the history of art and so you know I was 21 years old I was in this art fair I looked around me and I just had this epiphany moment and I think when you have this epiphany moment that seems so obvious that you've had to sort of check yourself so much you just can't mm. help but do something about it immediately so I literally went home that night couldn't sleep and just started this Instagram account and I just said you know it, it wasn't even for anything it was just for myself really I mean th mm. that's what it is I still update it daily uh, with posts discussing works by women artists because there are so many out there and the thing is you know even though I've written a whole book of it there's still so much more work to be done. And then this is the thing I find really fascinating because, I mean, I had, funnily enough, a similar moment quite a few years ago now. I guess it was about 2006, 2007 at the Pompidou Centre here in Paris, where I was walking around with my partner and we they had some of the Gorilla Girls, who I'm sure we'll come on to, to talk about later. And it struck me that, A, I hadn't really considered. So the Gorilla Girls, just to put it in context for our listeners, are a sort of a, an activist, activist artist who have been highlighting, in a way, the, the lack of the women artists in museums and institutions since the 80s, right? Yeah, 1985, exactly. Mm. And the thing that struck me was, A, what they were presenting was how few women artists were representing, but also how I had no idea of that fact. And that was almost almost more shocking than the statistics in a way. As the, the sort of in my, you know, going about my life, and I was about 25, 26 at this point, that it had never occurred to me at until that moment that um, that this was this was a thing. And, I, and it's fascinating to hear that for you as an art historian, because I was kind of a punter with no classical training, so maybe it's not enormously surprising, but even as an art historian, th there was this moment. And that's, that's quite shocking. I know, it was. And the thing is, I, from that day on, I mean, I just changed my life because I think when you do have these kind of revelationary moments and you just think... First of all, how did I not notice this? I think that's mm. when you really have to sort of click things into action and, you know, make it possible. And I just thought, right, if no one else is going to tell me then I'm going to have to go out and figure this out for myself. But, you know, you mentioned the Gorilla Girls as well. And what's so brilliant about the Gorilla Girls is they make things accessible and fun and bold and mm -hmm. humorous. You know, they have these amazing posters with these slogans, stuff like, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? Because they found that less than 5% of the artists in the modern art section were women but 85% of the nudes are female. And once you put it into that context, you're just like, oh my goodness, we've been studying the history of patriarchy instead of the history of art. Yeah. And so you, with your Instagram account or your podcast, it's riffing on the title of an essay by uh, Linda Nochlin from the, from the 70s, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? Um, and 
Yet with the book, you chose a slightly different title or let's say a slightly different position. And that is riffing on the great E.H. Gombrich book, uh, The Story <laughs> of Art. Yeah. Now, it, it struck me that you could have gone two ways with this title. You could have either done The Story of Art without men or you could have done The Story of Art with women. Mm. And it seems to me that there's two very different positions there. And I, I think your choice uh, opens up the book in various different ways. But can you just explain a little bit the thinking behind, I guess, the choice of the title, The Story of Art Without Men, rather than with women? That's such an interesting question. And, you know, it. it I mean, I mean, there, there are so many reasons, you know, first of all, to riff off Gombrich. I always think as well, you know, you want to you want to grab people's attention with a headline that they feel familiar with in a way, a bit mm. like the great women artists like Lyndon Ockman. With the story of art, um, you know, Gombrich was a book that I read growing up and I still love mm -hmm. today. But the thing is, its first edition includes zero women artists from 1950 and only the mm -hmm. most recent one includes just one. But in a way, calling it without men actually makes it more inclusive because mm -hmm. what I'm also trying to do is, you know, I started The Great Women Artists in 2015. Would I call it that today? You know, this is really a celebrated book of all genders who aren't men as well. So I wanted mm -hmm. it to be as inclusive as possible and invite everyone to the conversation. And I also think that when you do say without men, sometimes people are like, oh my goodness, well, well, it's the story of art, essentially the story of art without women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It put me in mind, funnily enough, of a book that came out earlier this year, a novel um, by a writer called Selby Wynne Schwartz. A novel is called After Sappho. And it's essentially telling the uh, the story of the a group of uh, lesbian and queer women in and around Paris in the, the 1920s. And there are almost there's almost absolutely no presence of men in the novel. And the effect that had on me was quite similar to the effect that your book had on me, which was it was kind of reconfiguring my uh, my perspective in a way. Because I think if you had written the story of art with women in sort of giving the context of, you know, all of the names that we've seen time and time again and add in women in there, in a way it wouldn't have broken the canon in quite the way that your book seems determined to do. I think that that's very kind of you. I mean, yeah, you know, it's meant to be go-getting. It's meant to be cheeky. It's meant to be tongue-in-cheek and, you know, grabbing people's attention because I think that's what you've got to do when something so obvious, like, you know, the stat the statistic you gave earlier, 1% of the National Gallery being by women. It's like, we've got to do something about this immediately. But also how I'm, I mean, I'm going to go away and, and, and buy that book. It sounds fantastic. But also the thing is, is it's not actually that difficult to leave out men. Mm -hmm. You know, and actually one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book and really root it in the story of art and highlight the sort of social and political context is because I was really fed up as well of women being seen as the wife of, the muse of, the sister of, the mm -hmm. daughter of. And, you know, I'd read the kind of 150 word blur 150 word blurb of Mary Oppenheim or something, a fantastic surrealist artist from Paris. And it would mention about seven male artists who she was associated mm -hmm. with. And it's just a bit like, hang on a second, you know, why does why do we have to mention Picasso every time we talk about Dora Maar? Because when we go to a Picasso show, even if it's based on one year of his life, Dora Maar is not even mentioned. And so it's about mm -hmm. giving these people the time of day that they deserve. I mean, but also in a way that I hope in this book is also quite seamless and you can actually write the story of art without men. Mm. And I think there's something fascinating as well, which is um, at the moment you say this is not a definitive history. Mm. And it's clear throughout the, the way you present it, but also I think the, the language that you choose to use. So quite often when you will um, ex express a, an opinion, you'll be very clear to, to express it as your opinion, you say to my mind or in my opinion. And that really highlighted for me how when you're reading books, say that like the Gombrich, and again, I uh, read the Gombrich when I was quite young and I'm quite an admirer of it, it's beautiful prose. Totally. But that sort of assumption of authority by Gombrich, like he is presenting the story of art. And when he ref he will say, not just in my mind, this is his artist's greatest work, but he will say, and this is the artist's <laughs> greatest work. Do you think, was that on your part, like a very conscious approach not to provide, to be seen as like this uh, unimpeachable authority? Or is it something more that sort of, because as a, as, as a woman, as somebody who hasn't sort of been uh, sort of placed in this position in the patriarchy, there's just more sort of, I guess, natural humility and a natural kind of acceptance of the sort of the, uh, let's say, the, the fluidity of uh, ideas and opinions and things like this. 
Totally. I mean, you know, the, the idea of saying it's not a definitive history is because how can you ever write a definitive history? I think we just mm-hmm. have to be honest with ourselves. You know, the story of art is ongoing. This is a fraction of the fraction of a fraction of a fraction. I mean, in a way, I look at this book and I see ghosts because of all the artists mm-hmm. I had to leave out just for sort of for the purpose of clarity. And the thing is, is that what I hope this book does as well is encourage people from all different backgrounds, all different medias, everything, to write their version of the story of art. And the thing mm-hmm. is when, you know, I love expressing my personal feeling about an artwork. And I think if anything, if I express my personal feeling, someone else might come in and say theirs. And actually, I think it's mm-hmm. really important. You know, with this book, it's not just about breaking up the canon in terms of inviting other genders in. Of course, it's, you know, that's one of its primary aims. But It's also to break down the canon in terms of media. You know, we look at textiles, Mm -hmm. weaving, sculpture, painting, mosaics, everything. But Mm -hmm. also what I hope most of all is that it invites people to this subject because it's a kind of beautifully produced book. What I wanted to happen is, you know, a 13 year old pick it up in a library and think, Oh, okay, that's like that's someone's opinion. I can also have my opinion, even though I might not ever have stepped into a museum of gallery. You know, art history has been a subject that has long been seen as elitist. And the thing mm-hmm. is, is that especially in where in London, where I live, so many of the museums are free. All the commercial galleries right. are free. We can all be invited into this place, and we're all we should all be valid to have our own opinion. And so that's Mm -hmm. what I want to do, because the thing is, when you don't also have, when you aren't discussing art history from a wide pool of people, then you're not getting those rich discussions. I want everyone from all different backgrounds, all different genders, age, races, religions, everything, to get involved in this, because Mm -hmm. we can have such rich and interesting discussions about the history of the world. And just to stay with the idea of language, just for, for one, one more point. At a moment, you talk about the expression woman artist or women, you talk about women artists. And you say that this is sort of and we have the similar thing in the book world, like people will refer to sort of women writers or women writers. Yeah. And in, in, for a long time, this has, there's been this idea to correct it. You do not use that sort of term, women writers. And in fact, you are, in a sense, reclaiming the the idea of woman artists as sort of not as the, the qualification as woman is in some way uh derogatory but is it something like a positive qualifier yeah definitely yeah i I write in the post-war chapter that you know some of these women the abstract expressionists because they were brilliantly you know fiercely independent you know they were sort of gawk and sort of like uh balk at the idea of me calling them women artists and putting them in this thing but actually i think we're living in such an interesting time in 2022 where you know it is a really powerful thing to say that you're a woman and i think people should be really proud of that and you know I, I think I think it's I think it's a really exciting time. And actually, when I see this book, it almost kind of looks like a party in a way. It's like mm-hmm. all these people celebrating, and it makes me, you know, it, it it makes me sad to think that women, the word woman, was used in a derogatory or negative way. Because the thing is, is that that's just a sort of reflection on how society viewed them. Because right. they were like, you know, I, I don't want to be seen as a woman artist because women you know, that that's a negative thing. No, absolutely mm-hmm. not. And and also the whole point of this is to be inclusive at the end of the day, because I feel like even the fact that we're in 2022, writing a book like this is necessary in order to then, you have to sort of almost go overboard in order to get equality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said in the introduction that you begin in uh, 1500, at the start of the the 16th century. Now I'm going to mention Gombrich one more time, then we'll leave him behind. So (laughs) his his story of art begins like with the, like the cave paintings in Lascaux Mm. and so can you talk a little bit about why you decided um, fifth, you know, the year 1500 was a good place to start this particular story? And also some of the challenges and some of the obstacles in researching women artists at this time, bearing in mind that essentially up until this point, the history of art has broadly been written by and for men. Oh, totally. I mean, really, I think that's that's what's that's where the issues have arisen. It's actually more like the narration of the history of art as opposed to even the artists. It's the fact that women have actually clearly been consciously written out of art history. Um, but, you know, I, I begin in 1500 because really, I mean, you know, a nice even number, about 500 years of art history. But also we don't really know about that many women artists before then. I mean, we know about people in the medieval period, like Anastasia, mm-hmm. who um, knew Christine de Pizan, who Christine de Pizan writes about. And then a couple of others like Hildegard of Bingen in the, in the 11th century, this amazing uh, nun who made illuminated, illuminated manuscripts. But the thing is, I didn't feel like we had a 
enough rich material to really begin this book. You know, I want to begin mm-hmm. this book in a very triumphant way. I think that is even the that that is even the sort of title of the first chapter. This idea of triumphants because they were these people fought for their place in our history and the fact that we still even remember their work. Mm-hmm. We remember their names. We have their work in museums. It's an absolute revolutionary feat, really. And um, it's just you, you, you know, I, I start it. And I say this, you know, in in the Renaissance, because even though so much of the time when we look at our history books, the Renaissance begins in the 1300s, really, there are hardly any records of women artists before that. And that's the thing. It's about actually what we need to do. And I always say to this, especially to young people who come to my talks, I'm saying there is so much work and scholarship to be done, especially with these early modern times, because, I mean, really... This book is divided into five parts, and part one is 1500 to 1900, and part two is um, sort of the interwar years, part three is post-war, part four is feminism in the 70s, and part five is 2000 to the present day. And in part one, despite it covering 400 years, it's by far the most, it's it's by far the thinnest section of the book. And Mm so, you know, it's just the fact that there isn't a, ri- a wealth of material out there. And you've got to think, like, it, it, there's like one, there's this amazing scholar called Babette Bonn, who works in Texas, who wrote this amazing book about 17th century Bolognese women artists. And yet she is one of the few women in the entire world who are specialists on this subject. When actually, if you put it into context, someone like how many scholars around the world, how many tomes, how many monographs, how many books have been written about Michelangelo or Leonardo alone, mm. you know? It's the fact that there is just so much work to be done and discovered. And that's one thing that really comes across in part one of the book is the sort of the, I guess, the obstacles that were constantly placed in the way of women artists. So obviously there are kind of societal obstacles. So uh, you say at one point that the Catholic Church was the most powerful and wealthy patron of the arts in the Renaissance and going forward. And then, you know, of course, we know that historically the way the church has, has, um, has treated women. But one thing within that society, there did seem to be certain little enclaves where things were a little bit more possible. So I had no idea, for example, that Bologna was, um, you know, for its time, uh, very forward thinking in the, in the in the way it treated women and women artists. Totally. And also you've got to think like, for, for example, just to give the audience some context, women weren't allowed into the life room where they could study their nude, mm. you know, learn an anatomical skill with their painting until the 1890s especially, you know, in the Western world as well. And it's the fact that these women just had constant barriers to overcome. Mm -hmm. And so much of the time that they would even be able to become artists was if their father was an artist as well, because they could grow up and learn the art in his studio. They could copy from works. They could copy from plaster casts. They had that accessible training. There's only very few examples where women do not have fathers as artists. But actually, Mm -hmm. if they did, then they, they were probably quite wealthy. So their father could, you know, Women essentially had to have a powerful man. Like you say, it might include God, you know, the Catholic Church looking at them as well. <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, the nunnery, you know, women who go to the nunneries as well, they could do that. But Bologna was extraordinary. And I think what they did was, it was this amazing time in history in the 16th and 17th centuries. I mean, really, the, the university had been open since the 1300s. And they would just, they, they saw women as these key components of the city in terms of art, literature, scholarship. And they not only sort of, but it might sound quite simple, but what they did was just encourage them to make self-portraits. They encouraged them to sign their work. And Bologna, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of the Italian states, such as in Florence with the Medici family, where one family kind of dominated the patronage, in Bologna, patronage was actually kind of widely uh, dispersed between barbers, mm-hmm. bankers, all these different prof- all these different professions, which actually meant there was more demand. And as a result, more women artists got commissions. Hmm. And outside of uh, Bologna, for example, it also seems, and this is something which, again, sort of comes uh, repeatedly through the book, is that because of these restrictions, it leads to a certain level of subversion and a certain level of innovation in art by women that surpasses uh, art by men at the time, just almost through kind of, it's kind of the uh, combination, I guess, of creativity and um, necessity. So um, you you talk about this wonderful picture, and there's, there's an example in the book, but I'll, I'll perhaps pass over to you to describe it for our, uh, for our listeners. By now, let me let me pronounce this right. Sofonisba Aguizola. Is that Sofonisba a... Aguizola. Yeah, and this so this wonderful kind of, uh, it's called Self-Portrait with Bernardino Campi. And it's something which uh, on first glance could look like quite a traditional painting, but 
as you described to us, it gives us lots. Of, it, there's lots of indications of how exactly she is subverting uh, the conventions and the, the the structures of the time. Because women artists were restricted to genres, these so-called lesser genres, such as portrait mm. and still, portraiture and still life, because these were genres that they could easily access from the home, because if they weren't able, first of all, to even study the neutral life, how are they going to even paint these grand mythical biblical stories with these kind of multi-figured paintings and so what they did they sort of said okay well if you're going to reduce us or restrict us to portraiture or, or, or still life then we're going to monopolize these markets we're going to switch them up we're going to upend mm -hmm. these and the work that you're describing is uh Sofonisba Anguissola's self-portrait with Bernardino Campi from 1555 which is of her teacher painting her and so you're right, on first glance, it looks like it's just him dictating her appearance in a quite classical way. But then we have to think about it again. This is her painting him dictating her appearance. And not only mm -hmm. is she painted as 1.5 times as big as him, but he's, she's also got him painting the embellishment of the jacket, but which is something that was normally assigned to an apprentice. And actually, in the 90s, a pentimento, which is kind of like an x-ray, discovered that she had originally painted her hand meeting his as if guiding his hand around the canvas. So this woman, 1555, I mean, she was just extraordinary. And the fact that she was saying, OK, well, if I'm going to have to paint a portrait, I'm going to do it in the most clever and witty way. And, and that's and that's the thing that, that just seems to come across as well, is that there's uh, there's this kind of sensibility in a lot of these artists, which perhaps is lacking in um, in in a lot of the let's say the more uh, uh, well known male artists. Which is sort of there seems to be so much humour in in these in artists. And I'm just saying, like right from the 1500s right up till today, like uh, I guess it's this kind of instinct for for subversion and mischief and sort of pushing against the limits. But at so many times in this book, I came across uh, <laughs> a, either the work of art that made me laugh or a story behind a work of art that made me laugh. And I think that's kind of, that seems quite novel to me in a, in a sort of a, a tome about art history. But I think, I think humour is the key to everything. And I think I learned that from the Gorilla Girls. You know, you've got to grab mm. people's attention, but also you have to use humour in order to make things human as well. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I want this to be a readable book and, and I want people to enjoy it. And art history is something that is obviously very serious. And there are a lot of serious, I mean, the, you know, most of the book is very serious, but it's peppered with these light sort of anecdotes or humorous things because I think that draws people in and it makes you feel mm -hmm. like oh actually you know what these people were great actually and, and, and you know the fact that I think also what I really don't want to do is see you know place women as the victim of something because they weren't these women mm -hmm. were absolutely triumphant in their life they came across they overcame every single barrier for them to, to demand their place in our history and they did you know one of my favorite stories is like someone like Suzanne Valadon from the early 1920s in Paris mm -hmm. and she was this extraordinary woman she was born out of wedlock she sort of was raised by a single mother um lived in Montmartre in the sort of bohemian centre at the end of the 19th century. And then she became a trapeze artist, but because she fell from a trapeze, her acrobatic dreams were cut short. And so she turned to artist modelling and she sat for the likes of Renoir, Degas, Bert Morisot. And then she turned to actually painting herself and had this amazing mm -hmm. backdoor insight in, and education into art history. And what she does is she also upends and subverts these compositions that women have been objectified in for years. So there's this fantastic work called The Blue Room, which is a self-portrait from 1923, mm -hmm. which is very much, it's of herself. And it's very much kind of evoking this Venus-like reclining pose. But she's dressed, you know, she's dressed in almost sort of pajamas, these striped trousers, this <laughs> strap top. She's sort of on her bed, framed by a sea of blue fabrics. She's pushed the books to the back of the bed and she's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And it, it just, for me, <laughs> that just exudes this idea of like women could do whatever they wanted, whatever they mm -hmm. wished. And actually when you give that sort of, yes, humorous, but also human aspect, you think, yes, these, these women were fighting for their place and they deserve to be remembered in the history of art. Yeah, and despite all of the kind of the, the, the restrictions and the obstacles, there does seem to be this kind of underlying sense of fun as well. Like, so, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the, the surrealists and how sort of oh, yeah. most of the male surrealists, <laughs> probably with the exception of Salvador Dali, were all kind of serious looking guys in tweed suits. And then the women sort of brought that into the, the world as well in the manner that they dressed and in, perhaps in the manner that they lived as well, more so than, uh, than, than the men. Totally. Can I, can I read the opening paragraph to the... Please uh, do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, of course, the so this is from my chapter, Worlds Beyond Our Realm Surrealism. Of course the women were important, 
but it was because they were our muses. They weren't artists. So claimed Roland Penrose, husband of <laughs> Lee Miller to legendary feminist Whitney Chadwick during her visit to his home in the 1980s. When Chadwick later asked artist Leonora Carrington for her thoughts on the surrealist muse, she replied, I thought it was bullshit. I didn't have time to be anyone's muse. I was too busy rebelling against my family and learning to be an artist. But actually, you know, that just gives an insight into these go-getting women. They weren't fussed about. And, you know, the fact that they've been written out of our history, they'd probably just roll their eyes at it and be like, well, to be honest, we were just doing our thing anyway. We were as groundbreaking as the men. And so we deserve it too. One thing that becomes really clear um, throughout the book, at least up until um, the end of the Second World War, is the importance of Paris to yeah. uh, the history of art generally and, and the history of art by women in particular. Um, what do you think it is about Paris throughout, let's say, from the French Revolution up to the, the Second World War that made it such an important crossroads for for women artists? I mean, just Paris being the centre of the world for art, I mean, just generally, and it having the most incredible schooling and also just the, these legendary artists, like people like Elizabeth Faget Lebrun, all these world-famous artists at the time, you know, being in Paris and being these sort of pillars for these artists who are women who could actually go to Paris and study. And also the fact that Paris, especially at the turn of the century, was this place of complete liberation compared mm -hmm. to, you know, Britain. I mean, you mentioned this fantastic book, After Sappho. It very much reminds me of my chapter on queer art, where, mm -hmm. where we actually look at the difference between France and Britain at the time. I mean, just to give some context, Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness was banned in Britain, yeah. whereas in Paris, it was celebrated. And that's why Paris had this incredibly embracing queer culture. And just, you know, women could be completely liberated. It was kind of post-World War One. They could dress mm. as they wanted. Androgyny was in. And they were just able to be free. And there was just this collective, it must have been a sort of collective like-mindedness of all these artists coming to Paris and actually making these self-portraits, demanding for their place. Like there's a fantastic exhibition at the moment in London called Making Modernism, which explores mm. the German expressionists and one of them is Paula Modison Becker who was a fantastic yes. German expressionist who sort of fled from her artist colony in Warpsbader which sort of focused on the kind of landscape and natural likeness of the world and she came to Paris because she was like you know I, I yearned for modernity I want to see these works in the Louvre I want to I want to study from these ancient plaster casts I want to be liberated in this city I want to walk around I mean you know similarly there were still so many boundaries as well, because I had this fantastic quote by Marie Bashkirtseff, an amazing Euro Ukrainian artist in the book, where she, you know, she still talks about being uh, banned from, can I read it? Is that okay? Yes, yes please um, do. You know, this, this is slightly before in um, the 18, sort of 90s, but she says, what I long for is the freedom of going about alone, of coming and going, of sitting on the seats of the Tuileries, and especially in the Luxembourg, of stopping and looking at the artistic shops, of entering the churches and museums, of walking about the old streets at night. That's what I long for. That's the freedom without which one can't become a real artist. But that was in the 1890s, and already 10 years later, women were so much more liberated. They could go out unchaperoned they could study state-funded education and also it was just this haven for experimentation i think with that a place an environment of modernity produces great work and great artists it's fascinating that you mentioned um, paula modus and becker because um there was an exhibition now probably six or so years ago in Paris at the Palais de Tokyo, curated by the brilliant novelist uh, Marie Dariasek, all about uh, Paula Modersohn Becker. And in, in a way, sort of coming from a very similar position to you, it's like this, this artist of whom, you know, had not been fully accepted into the canon and yet was so utterly radical. So the first, uh, I believe, the first artist to do, uh, to paint a nude self-portrait. Oh, Paula, yeah, yeah she, she painted the first like half semi-nude self-portrait so that's pain yeah sixth, mm -hmm. sixth wedding anniversary but one of the things with Modus and Becker's story and this is one of the things that comes up kind of depressingly frequently in the book is just how uh, so Paula Modus and Becker died after complications through childbirth and one thing that becomes so yes depressingly clear is so how many of these women's careers and lives were cut short by uh, complications due to childbirth or or sort of, let's say, restrictions on the female body imposed by society at the time. Totally. I mean, you know, this this book is also full of tragedy because someone like Paula Modison-Becker, who was 31 at the time, she'd never even 
exhibited her work. I mean, maybe she'd had mm-hmm. one exhibition, but, you know, she went on in 1927 after she died, um, you know, nearly 20 years after she died. She became the first woman in artist in Europe to have a museum dedicated to her because it's almost as though these women were so groundbreaking that the world didn't even know it yet. They actually mm-hmm. had to wait until after they died, which is insane. And, you know, so much of the time, I mean, that's happening right now in the, time, in the, in the sense that so many women artists who are older today or perhaps even died now they're only getting their recognition now which is absolutely insane and actually mm-hmm. kind of coming back to the first point we made about having this epiphany moment i was also studying the work of alice neal and it mm-hmm. took her until she was 72 to actually have any sort of recognition a small exhibition at the whitney museum but even that was panned and then after she died in 1984 she sort of gone on to have this insane success especially Last year, last summer at the Met Museum in New York, you know, she had a sold out exhibition. There's an exhibition I know that's doing so well at the Pompidou right now by Alice Neal. It's about mm. to come to the Barbican in spring next year. And it's almost as though, you know, there's, there's something so interesting about what these women were making. And actually, because perhaps because they didn't have the recognition or the kind of institutional acclaim, they just did what they wanted in a way. Mm-hmm. And they, they created these works that were so groundbreaking like when I look at this book and I look at all the works for me every single one of these artworks feels contemporary it is contemporary Mm -hmm. because there was just something so fearless about the way that they're creating and when you have that sense of fearless that sense of timelessness that that sort of just transcends everything you know Mm -hmm. backgrounds time everything age everyone can relate to it because they're just great pieces of art Mm -hmm. and yet one further challenge that um, a lot of this uh, these works face and that you must have faced as an art historian is the again depressing frequency with which a lot of women's art was destroyed yeah so um there's one uh artwork you talk about by augusta savage the harp this beautiful sculpture oh. which as you say was destroyed after after the, it was at the world's fair in chicago was it I new york city in 1939 in new york city and but was destroyed due to lack of funding to pay for its storage costs um and just that sense of like this you know the these works could be created but if they're not respected and if they're not looked after then you know we fortunately we at least we have a photo of the harp but i can only imagine there must be so many works of art throughout the throughout history which we don't don't have any trace of or we don't have any knowledge about because they were not treated uh with the same reverence as men's work. exactly and you sort of raised such a good point here as well because it's not like these women artists were, rec- were not recognised in their time. You know, someone like Augusta Savage, who was one of the key components of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, this work at the World's Fair, the harp, which is of this beautiful, it was a 16 foot high sculpture of the of a sort of choir of black children sort of held in the palm of God's hands that looks like a harp, hence the name. And it was placed centre stage and it, had, it received national press coverage. Yet, obviously afterwards, because due to lack of funding and storage costs, it was destroyed. But imagine if someone had paid attention and said, actually, hang on, I'm going to fund this. And w- mm-hmm. how different our perception of art history and history would be, because I think it's actually about the longevity. It's about the legacy. You know, the reason why so many male artists are so well known who have gone through academies is because when you went to the Royal Academy or the Royal Academy in France and Paris, then your legacy was preserved because they would look after you. They would make sure you got mm. the commissions, make sure you got using the right materials, everything. Make sure you had the right patrons supporting your work so you could be remembered in history. You know, it's the fact that so many of these people were groundbreaking and international celebrities in their time, yet we still haven't heard of them because they haven't written, they haven't, they've been written out rather than mm-hmm. not even being written in, in a, yeah. to our history. And- and if the and if the artworks were destroyed, there's also quite a few examples of the the authorship, uh, yeah, being being erased. So you talk about like uh, from from the Renaissance onward, the signatures being scratched off of paintings. You also mentioned uh, a case which I'd never heard of before: um, Selma Burke and her uh, sculpture, a relief sculpture of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, which is strikingly similar to uh, the one that appears on the is it the the dime? I can't. Yeah, which is by John Sinek, who took all the credit mm-hmm. for it, and actually. You know, the FBI tried to do an investigation, but, you know, it's the fact that it's the fact that these people, these women weren't taken seriously. And so their names weren't cemented. And because those in authoritarian positions were men. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is something um, as well about about because of the, I guess, the position in society that women artists occupied and perhaps continue to occupy that leads to sort of a greater sensitivity to other 
social injustices? Because it strikes me um, throughout the book, but particularly as we get into the 20th century, but even before, that there does seem to be more of a sort of, more of these artists seems more tuned into questions of class and questions of race, for example, and questions of sexuality too, than uh, than their male counterparts. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a way I don't really know, but I think definitely so many of these women were so nurturing. You know, we just mentioned Augusta Savage. Mm. She started schools in Harlem for kids. Mm -hmm. You know, she taught the likes of Gwendolyn Knight and Gwendolyn Knight and Jacob Lawrence. And, you know, these people didn't just give their life to their art, but they also gave their life to educating the next generations and putting mm -hmm. on exhibitions. And actually, it's still being done today. We look at someone like Micheline Thomas, a fantastic mm -hmm. artist working in America. What she does whenever she has exhibitions is she also curates a group exhibition to sort of give voice to mm -hmm. and lift up these younger artists. And actually, you know, maybe it comes from a sensibility of just you know, knowing what it's like to be oppressed and knowing what it's like to be othered. And so you say, actually, hang on a sec, let's all bring this together. It's a bit like when we go to the 70s, the, when we go to the feminist chapter in the 70s, it's actually about coming together and actuating change. Mm. Because I think there's this been kind of myth in history, you know, about the kind of lone male genius and how, you know, it's about the individual and the individual can do it all. I mean, personally, I say this book would not be possible for would, would it not be for me standing on the shoulders of all these people who have come before? I mean, literally my acknowledgement is about 16 pages long because it's <laughs> such a, it's such a collaboration, but I think collaboration is such a great thing. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it, no one should no nothing should be just one person's voice. It should be about coming together because that's how we're going to change the world by coming mm -hmm. together and actuating that change. And, and that sort of leveling effect is also carried over by the book into, uh, I guess, disciplines, you would say, in art itself. So you, you made reference to this um, in, in your, your answer to my first question about sort of how one of the, the main aims of this book is not only to show, for example, women painters and women sculptures, but also to focus on things like quilt making, for yeah. example, and other things which historically have been dismissed as crafts, let's say, in a, in a sort of slightly derogatory sense. But that's just totally hangovers from the academies being like, well, mythological mm. and biblical oil painting is at the top and these sort of craft and decorative arts are at the bottom. Whereas actually, as we see throughout the book, fantastic examples of quilt making in the 19th century, you know, botanical photography, um, pottery, you know, the whole time. I mean, one of my favourite chapters, which is a sort of anomaly in the whole book, is on fibre arts, which is at the end mm -hmm. of um, part three. And what I do is I sort of focus on just a range of artists using utilising fibre arts in the 20th century. But also I focus on artists like Judith Scott, who was neurodiverse, mm -hmm. who was born with Down syndrome and was put in institutions her whole life until her twin sister, who was born without disabilities, found her and brought her to San Francisco to work at Creative Growth, which is this extraordinary place for neurodiverse people to experiment with art. And as a result, you know, this woman couldn't speak. And so what she did is she communicated by bundling bits of thread and fiber around trains, trolleys, bicycle wheels, everything, and in turn just made the most beautiful work and, and has since, you know, been honoured with an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum and everything. And it's the fact that it's so important to making to make sure that we also, you know, my whole thing is that I want everyone to be able to see themselves in this book and see themselves reflected in the history of art. It's why I love Alice Neal so much, because Alice Neal mm -hmm. was this extraordinary portrait painter in mid-century America. But what she did, she didn't discriminate. She painted everyone from all walks of society. She painted the likes of Andy Warhol, but she also painted her cleaner, her grandson, her landlord's son. And actually mm -hmm. when we see that, you know, Hilton Owls writes so beautifully about it, you know, being a young boy and seeing someone like him, seeing someone who looks like him in a painting and thinking, mm. hang on a sec, I can be part of that story too. Yeah, there seems to be a tension in the last few answers in a way between the the importance, let's say, of the academies or the schools for for nurturing, for for supporting artists and for, for helping them for maybe find a community. And on the other side, for sort of perhaps dictating a little bit too much what is taken seriously and what is given consideration. Mm -hmm. And yet there's one... Um, one, let's say, school, uh, one movement in a way, which uh, you talk about, which seems to kind of navigate that tension very well, which is the Black Mountain College. Yeah. Um, 
So we're going to hear a, a little uh, reading uh, from from the book about it. Let's, let's begin with that, and let's uh, and then we'll have a little bit of ch chat about. Yeah, Black Mountain College is really one of my favourites, and and I think what I wanted to do with this book as well is to sort of branch out into different themes or headings that would otherwise not have been seen before. So, for example, I'd sort of look at you know, social and political commentary, you know, people who are living throughout the world wars and are almost creating these kind of graphic novel styled works who wouldn't often, you know, usually be included in this story. This chapter, it's a, black, black, the chapter on Black Mountain College really comes out of my chapter on post-war art. And I'll just also read that what I do as well is start with a quote in every single chapter by an artist to kind of give an insight into what life must have been like. And so this this is the start at the start of part three. I really sort of set the scene of what it was like to what it must have been like, what how, how I can comprehend what it must have been like to be an artist in the post-war era. And I, I've got this fantastic quote from Grace Hartigan from 1976. And she says, you have to think about Europe, too, and the Second World War. Here we had gone through this Holocaust, and for what? What is there left? What was left was a private conscience, an individual searching his or her feelings and making a move into an unknown. One could only move as honestly and closely towards oneself as possible. For the painters, the unknown was a blank area or space. That was all there was. There was no structure, nothing interwoven. A lot of the music, dance and poetry also had this as an underlying philosophy. Then what happened was we reacted against Europe. We had a very strong sense of being American, of being pioneers again, creative pioneers. So that's really kind of setting the scene of what, what it was like to sort of be in America post-war. This was a time when people were fleeing Europe, these kind of especially Jewish refugees coming over, being saved by these places. And one of them was Black Mountain College. So let me, let me tell you about Black Mountain College. Again, starts with a quote by Ruth Asawa from 1976. Art will make people better, more highly skilled in thinking and improving whatever business one goes into or whatever occupation it makes a person broader. Running concurrently with the birth of the American avant-garde in New York City was perhaps the most progressive and experimental liberal art school to exist in Western history, Black Mountain College. Born out of the principles of the then recently closed Bauhaus, which you can find out more about on page 166, and American philosopher John Dewey's progressive writings about education, Black Mountain College revolutionized artistic and academic schooling. Active between 1933 and 1957 and set up in rural North Carolina, the school's ethos included eliminating all hierarchies between students and teachers, genders and races. It boasted classes in pottery, painting, dance, music, weaving, carving, architecture, as well as maths, economics, literature, philosophy, disciplines they believed should be viewed and taught without any distinction. Although Black Mountain College was founded by academic John Andrew Rice, former Bauhaus weaver Annie Albers and her husband Joseph were powerful presences at the school. They encouraged their students to learn through doing, implementing educational methods that prioritized imagination, invention, and the use of all available materials. Part of the school was built from scratch and the food served was prepared using ingredients farmed from the local area. Students were also advised to strip away any prior knowledge and leave their egos behind. In the words of Annie Albers, she said, I tried to put my students at the point of zero. I tried to have them imagine that they are in a desert in Peru, no clothing, no nothing, no pottery, and to imagine themselves at the beach with nothing. And what do you do? Not only did this provide a unique training for artists of any type, it was also vital for shaping the core values of the individual students. Black Mountain College, although remote, attracted a glittering array of tutors who brought with them philosophical ideas as well as constructs of modernism and abstractions. During the 1930s and 40s, many institutions in the US were offering European refugees teaching posts, especially those of Jewish heritage, to free them from the rise of fascism in their home countries to help them rebuild their lives. Board members of Black Mountain College included Walter Gropius and Albert Einstein. Other visiting artists included key Harlem Renaissance painter Gwendolyn Knight and abstract expressionist Elaine de Kooning, arriving with their husbands who had been invited to teach. Black Mountain College was also one of the first schools to admit non-white students and teachers as equal members of the community. No matter what their role, everyone ate together during the day and were known to party together at night. 
in an environment where furniture making was taught by Mary Gregory, poetry by Hilda Morley and Joanna Jalavetz oversaw bookbinding and students included Dorothea Rockburn, Mary Parks Washington, Susan Vale and Pat Paslov, the school embraced all practices and intellectual freedom, as confirmed by former student Ruth Asawa, who said, I spent three years there and encountered great teachers who gave me enough stimulation to last me for the rest of my life. Although its influence has perhaps been overlooked across the globe, the school produced some of the most exciting artists and creative thinking of the 20th century. While there were many women who benefited from the teaching, I want to focus on two artists in particular for their pioneering approach to art making and education, two disciplines they saw as inextricably linked and imperative to life. Arguably, the most influential woman to teach at Black Mountain College was Annie Albers. Having already established her career in Weimar, Germany, the mid-20th century decade saw Albers excel and pass on her experimental and playful approaches to her students, with whom she would make necklaces out of sink plugs and weave functional objects, napkins and placemats. After visiting the Mayan ruins in Mexico in the winter of 35 and 36, Albers continued to visit and be inspired by Central and South America, in particular pre-Columbian Peruvian textiles, and incorporated this influence into Western traditions. Previously creating textiles for functionality alone, in 1947, Albers began making hand-woven weaves for no other reason than to be looked at or for self-expression. She called them pictorial weavings, orange, red, blue, white, webbed, braided and folded. Albers presented her textiles with a seamlessness that echoes how paintbrushes glide across canvas. One great example is Intersecting from 1962, with its sinuous lines and flickers of white throughout. Departing Black Mountain College in 1949 to join her husband, Joseph, at Yale University, where they will be great influences on Sheila Hicks and the Fiber Arts Movement, which you can find out more about on page 315. In the same year, she became the first female textile artist to receive a solo exhibition at New York's MoMA. In 1965, she published her monumental and influential book on weaving, which is still celebrated today. Expanding form, defying structure, playing with traditions and blurring definitions between hard and soft, tall and small, strong and fragile, Ruth Asawa created biomorphic sculptures that were inspired by a trip to Mexico, taken during a summer break from Black Mountain College. Asawa was brought up on a farm in California by immigrant Japanese parents. Curious and eager, she spent her childhood helping out on the farm before and after school and attending Japanese calligraphy classes on Saturdays. But it was the 1930s and racial prejudice against the Japanese was worsening. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, more than 100,000 Japanese Americans were placed in internment camps across the US, including a teenage Asawa. Held against their will and in abominable conditions, what she endured one can't imagine. But despite the horrific circumstances, communities in the camps came together to bolster morale and provide education for the younger generations. Professional artists, including Tom Okamoto, an animator for Walt Disney, spent time teaching Asawa. Motivated by her teachers to look to the future, upon her release, Asawa set out to earn a teaching degree from Milwaukee State Teachers College. However, despite training for three years, she was denied a job due to racial discrimination. Encouraged by her friends, she enrolled at Black Mountain in 1946, where she flourished. She took classes with Joseph Albers, her personal mentor, and Buckminster Fuller, whose hair she cut as a volunteer barber, and after a trip to Mexico in 1947, began her repetitive looped wiring technique. Taking the Black Mountain College approach to art and life, Asawa moved to San Francisco in 49 and set up her practice in her home. Hanging from the ceiling, her larger cell and cocoon-like wire sculptures simultaneously emanate strength and fragility, as seen in Untitled, circa 1954. Made up of continuous and interlocking wires, some of Asawa's sculptures evoke bodily, weighty, womb-like forms, but also appear serene, vulnerable, and weightless. From every angle, they have the ability to take on a different, unexpected dimension, further enhanced when they are lit and creating shadows. Implementing the school's ethos further, as an avid believer in the power of art and education to, to change lives, Asawa co-founded Alvarado School Arts Workshop in 68 with the goal of enabling children of all backgrounds to make art from cheap materials. Aiming to instill agency in children, she went on to found the first public arts high school, the School of the Arts in 1982, renamed the Ruth Asawa School of the Arts in her honour in 2010. 
Just on, on Ruth Asawa, I think uh, of all of the, and the stiff competition, but of all of the artists I discovered through your book, I think both for her work and her life, she's yeah. certainly one of the most, if not the most, um, yeah, compelling discovery. Totally. I mean, Ruth Asawa, just in terms of her life story, what she went through, but also the kind of humility and just, I mean, you know, we were coming back to the idea of, you know, women not only being artists, but being educators. And I love this idea in this book. Hopefully you really get the sense that these people were just such, they had such multifaceted identities as well. And I think that's the power of it because you can't just be an artist alone. Life gets in the way, but in a sort of, let's embrace that, you know, let's, mm. let's, let, let's turn our home into a studio if that's what we've got to do. And I think it's so inspiring for everyone you know wanting to do art full-time or on the side or anything and just on the subject of Black Mountain College being overlooked um do you think that's straightforwardly just down to its the diversity of its of its students and its teachers that sort of that what the art world didn't recognize it and therefore didn't uh, didn't represent it I don't know I think it's these I think what I try to do as well in the book is really veer off piste and make these chapters that wouldn't normally maybe be seen in the canon of art history you know chapters on fiber arts chapters on Black Mountain College usually it'd be kind of Baroque impressionism you know neoclassicism everything and actually when you veer off these different paths you discover so much more and it really kind of you know after that chapter I look at Gutai which was a really experimental movement in Japan mm. in the post-war era and actually when you do that you have such a richer sense of art history because art history isn't this linear thing it's messy it's complicated it's brilliant it's experimental and I think it's so important to shine a light on that and with Black Mountain I'd studied Black Mountain at university actually and I'd been so captivated by by what it was mm -hmm. On the um, on the subject of experimental, um, I think probably as a, as I say, as somebody with no sort of formal training in art or art history, I think one of the areas, one of the genres which has always felt most kind of baffling to me is that of performance art. Yeah. Um, and you you come and you spend some time with this uh, later in the book, particularly talking about Yoko Ono and Marina Abramovich. Um, and firstly, I should say for something which you can't, it's not easy to reproduce on the page. Uh, I think readers get a really sort of profound sense or as, as probably as close as one can get to experiencing the art through through the words. So that really struck me as as quite an achievement, but also seeing it framed in the history of art by women suddenly made me at least tune in a little bit more to the idea of performance art. I think, and I haven't fully articulated this to myself, but I think in the, the fact of kind of the way that particularly people like Ono and Abramovich take this idea of woman as object, which has been so sort of profoundly sort of anchored in so much art throughout history and sort of take it embody it and turn it on its head exactly exactly it's this you know it's this commodity of the of of the history of the world isn't it the women's bodies and actually when you kind of give that agency and you say this is the object and the subject and the work itself you're completely challenging everything you're challenging every objectification in history which is extraordinary and so there's a few more things I want to talk about quickly. We are running out of time. Um, we mentioned the Gorilla Girls earlier. Um, and so I think they were certainly my first uh, encounter with what might be called uh, activist mm. art in a way. So sort of art that is, I guess, specifically sort of overtly politicized, and which to an extent has a has a, uh, a sort of an, an objective at, uh, at the end of it. Um, that seems to be something which has become increasingly common over the last uh, sort of, I think, particularly the last sort of 10, 15 years. And certainly seems to be one of the things that's kind of driving the, the art market. Um, do you think the, there is a danger that the sort of the market could be sort of, uh, let's say, engaging with this art without necessarily engaging with the underlying issues that uh, led to its creation. Yeah, I think you know, I think I think it's so important, especially when you are going to group, you know, women artists or artists of color or something, and you're going to group these people who have kind of always been shunned from art history into a certain group. I think it's so important to do it with meaning and consideration. And actually, you know, there is definitely danger when we say, okay, a woman artist exhibition. Well, it's like, well, why? Let's let's actually mm -hmm. write about this. Let's actually consider what the threads are between these artists. And so I do find it very worrying. Uh, when the market is sort of almost exploiting uh, this side mm -hmm. of it. But if anything, it's a reaction to the 
the, the mainstream attention that these artists and this kind of ethos is getting, which also can only be a good thing, because I think we are living in more inclusive and changing times than ever. You know, I I am ever the optimist. I, I do think that things are getting better despite there being mm. so much work still to be done. But the fact that these conversations are becoming ubiquitous is just showing challenging people that what we have led to believe is not the history of art. It's it, it's it's only one side of the story. And and on the subject of sort of you uh, deciding what to include in these sections, because obviously we, when we talked about the early centuries, you said in a sense it was kind of a, a dearth of material. You know, you had to kind of, you had to find these artists. And I, I'm, I'm guessing in when you're dealing with the last, like, particularly recent decade, there must be a surfeit. There must be so many artists to choose from. And of course, you know, because we're closer in time, so many of that, you know, so much of that work will have survived as well. Could you talk a little bit about how you curated, in a sense, these uh, the, the chapters that deal with the with the most recent decades. Did you just follow your nose, or was there a kind of an underlying philosophy? Yeah, I mean, it's it? an interesting question because I think that you know, it's it, it was it was impossible to write the part five two thousand the present day because of the abundance of non male artists and the sort of recognition mm. that they're getting. But also, it was you know, I, I didn't have many pages and many words to fill, and so I had to really kind of be concise about it and think. What do I think? Again, like I say, this is not a definitive art history. It's very much my take on things. And I've grown up in London my whole life. And so my take on something is going to be very different to someone in Paris or New York or wherever. And, you know, I, I really had to think about what what do I think are sort of the most most pressing subjects and the most sort of groundbreaking the works that I've seen in recent years. So we look at public art and monuments. We look at the kind of deconstruction of our ideas of kind of classical monuments with the likes of Kara Walker, who completely kind of upend that. We look at kind of new ideas of sculpture, painting and architecture with the likes of Sarah Z, who makes these laboratory-like sort of constellations of installations, these moving images, found objects, everything. Julie Meritu, who for me kind of best puts into two-dimensional form what the world that we're living in is happening right now with the kind of influx of information and images, the proliferation of it coming at us every single day. And for me, Julie Meritu sort of completely constructs that in her beautiful paintings that are just filled with so much. When we get up close, we see these pockets of information and then we stand back and it's, it's like the world becomes a dust-like atmosphere in a way. We look at Katerina Grosse, who kind of upends the idea of framing. You know, I, I saw that fantastic exhibition of hers at uh, the Louis Vuitton Foundation last summer. And it, it, it's this idea that painting has no boundaries. It has no corners. It can take up every inch of the museum and the space. And then we have this idea of Afrofuturism and myth making and storytelling, which is so incredible. And this idea that, OK, if these these stories didn't exist in ancient times and we're going to make them up now and we're going to use imagination. People like Ellen Gallagher, Wageshi Mutu. And then we have, you know, figurative painting for the present day and this idea of, you know, portraits being really powerful. People like Chantal Joffe, you know, demanding that this this person's life, no matter what their status is, demands to be in a giant painting, similarly with Micheline Thomas or Lisa Bryce. And then I end the book with a, with a chapter called the 2020s and the new masters. And I look at mm. three young artists all born in the nineties. And again, that I'm makes like, me feel very old. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> they're, they're, they're contemporaries of mine, really. But, but I, what I love about it is the fact that, um, you know, it, it, the book starts with oil paint. We start with Plautinelli making her mm. last supper in Santa Maria Novella. And we look at Sofonis Van Gosola with self-portrait of Bernardino Campi. And then we look at what people are doing 500 years on with oil paint. And the fact that they're still using this medium that is ingrained in history. Think about all the paintings in the National Galleries or whatever that are made up of oil paints and how many you know, equestrian portraits or triumphant portraits have been made. But what are we doing now? What are artists doing in 2022 that is upending that idea of oil paint and making a new mm. art history for today? Yeah, yeah, and that was uh, uh, one of my favorite chapters because it suddenly it it gave me so many sort of uh, contemporary uh, avenues to explore as well, and sort of and this sort of the excitement of perhaps being able to discover an artist who is still not only at work but at the beginning of their yeah. career. Well, that's the thing. I mean, with with the book, I feel terrible because so many of these oeuvres are ongoing and, and multifaceted and everything, and I really just scratched the surface of it all. Mm -hmm. There's a um, there's a, a quote that you um, you included. It's quite a sort of a quite a lengthy paragraph, but I think it's really important. Um, it's what the the kind of point I think I'd like to conclude on uh, from uh, Carrie May Weems. 
And um, so, so she's writing about this uh, work kitchen table, or she's talking about this work kitchen table. Um, and, and she writes, there's still a sort of dearth, a lack of representational images of women and not, you know, like strong, powerful and capable, that kind of bullshit, but rather just images of black women in the world in the domain of popular culture. I think it's one of the reasons that kitchen tables still prove to be so valuable or invaluable to so many women and not just black women, but white women and Asian women and not just women, but men as well, have really come to me about the importance of this work in their lives. And this put me in mind of the final page of um, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, where she talks about how, you know, feminism and this kind of this, this revolution that she's proposing is not just for the benefit of women it's for the benefit of everyone. It's yeah. sort of that men are just as sort of trapped by the patriarchy as women, in fact. And so one thing we deal with quite a lot at the bookstore is when we have books, let's say, about feminism or about uh, issues faced by people of colour or issues about gender and sexuality, is, let's say, often, you know, let's be straightforward, often white men saying, this is not for me. This is sort of... And, and yes. So often books only finding... Uh, the audience with people who are already perhaps minded to agree with them or don't necessarily need the the education or need the information as much as other people. Is this something which you faced in your uh, conception and the writing and promotion of the book? And how did you, if so, how did you try and sort of get around that sort of prejudice? I mean, I think it's, I think also not only that, but art is also something that is also seen as elitist and people are like, you know, I, I, I don't want to be, yeah, yeah. you know, art's not my thing, you know, everything. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Honestly, if you can see, if you have sight, art can be for absolutely everyone. And I think that's really what I want to do for it. I want to invite everyone into this story because, you know, like, like the quote that you make about Carrie Mae Weems, yes, it applies to her fantastic series, Kitchen Table series, but at the same time, it just applies to life generally. And I feel like we can discover so much through these individuals, because what I love about looking at art history, as opposed to like a, a general history, is also it's about the individual lives of those who have visually shaped it, you know, and it's about mm -hmm. saying, where were these people? And yes, they might be, you know, at the forefront of the French Revolution, but they also just might be in their kitchen as well. And that's just as important. It's about bringing the everyday life to, to art history and also bringing art history to everyday life as well. Mm -hmm. And giving, in turn, that sort of extra richness and extra depth to, yeah. to to our experience of the world, and this is this is what the the story of art without men does. I highly recommend this oh. book to our listeners, Katie. It's such a thank you it's so such much, Adam. Work, and it's been such a delight to to speak to you today. Of course, we have stacks and stacks of it at Shakespeare and Company. You can also order it from our online store, or you can buy it from your local independent bookstore wherever you are uh, in the world. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Adam, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just three euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>